Hey you. Yes, you. Thanks for tuning in to the Healthy, Wild, and Free podcast. My name is David Benjamin. I'm your host and the founder of HealthyWildAndFree.com. If you're like me, you understand that health, the mind-body-spirit-heart connection, and living a green, eco-friendly, sustainable lifestyle are some of the most valuable and life-enhancing lessons that we can learn and pass on to our children to live happy and abundant lives. That's why this podcast was created, to help you grow in these areas. If you aren't already subscribed to the newsletter, go to HealthyWildAndFree.com, click the box at the top right-hand corner to get a free copy of our latest ebook, and you will be subscribed to be notified about future podcasts. Thanks for subscribing and tuning in. Enjoy. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is David Benjamin from HealthyWildAndFree.com, and today we have a very, uh, very special, unique guest who's going to be talking about um, brain, the brain health and its connection to, um, well, fitness rather, and its connection to brain health, and uh, how we can use that to our advantage to basically um, improve our health, improve our brain function, and just uh, live longer lives. Um, with with better memory, really. So um, let me see if I can get him on the line real quick. And then, um, okay, here we go. All right, so first I'm going to introduce him. His name is John Rady. He's an associate clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. And he's the author of eight books, including his latest book, Spark, The New Science of Exercise and the Brain. And uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today. And let me see if I can get him in real quick. And uh, hello, John. Are you there? Hello, hello, hello. Good to be with you this morning. Hey, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. I really, uh, really enjoyed your book. Um, uh, you know, Spark the new extra, the new science of exercise in the brain, and uh, I'm really excited about this interview. Um, I kind of wanted to start the interview off in a different kind of fashion, and just to ask you, um, how did you get into kind of uh, fitness and the brain and, and kind of uh, the link between these two in the first place? Like, what sparked your interest in that way? <laughs> yes, uh, I'll tell you. What sparked my interest was uh, actually growing up uh, here in Boston uh, um from a, a training point of view, I, I spent my years in the 70s here. Um, I started in the 70s, never left. But uh, and that was when the Boston Marathon was exploding, uh, and uh, we learned a lot about what exercise, or we thought uh, what exercise was doing uh, to make people be able to run through Heartbreak Hill and up the up up the hill at the very end and and be able to reach that nirvana type state so it became very we became very addicted to uh our own uh endorphins and that was the idea that we all had these great endorphins that uh we we raised when we were in this endurance phase that led to a a non-depressed uh fully satiated, fully ready to go, being able to push through pain kind of state. And uh, so because we had just discovered the brain, if you will, and discovering a lot about it uh, in the 70s and then in the 80s, and then we learned that perhaps endorphins wasn't the whole story, but there were a lot of other things going on to make our uh, uh, mood different, to change the way we felt about things. Um, and uh, this led to a lifelong interest uh, in how exercise could uh, change our mood, change our, and then change our attention uh, system. I began to see a bunch of people from the marathon who were who had to stop because of uh, an injury to their leg or their ankle or to their back and hip. Uh, and uh, these people came in, and immediately they were all depressed. Um, uh, but after they worked through that, a number of very, very high-functioning people had uh, what we'd call adult attention deficit disorder, and this led to another uh, sort of uh, area of my 
expertise, interest, and and passion, which was attention deficit disorder, uh, and the fact that uh, exercise was always something that we recommended and that people had been using as a way of uh, dealing with their ADD. They were self-medicating these people that had been very high performers and had been marathoners, and all of a sudden they had to stop and they couldn't train or or run, Uh, and they appeared with symptoms that they never had before, which were really uh, classic attention deficit disorder symptoms. Mm-hmm. So basically, the I, we're really just feeling great, kind of being more alert, aware, and, and having that uh, rush of endorphins was kind of a kind of the the buzz at the time, if you will. Um, you, you talked about in your book briefly about the, the Naperville School District and how students' test scores increased and, and, and different things occurred when they implemented an exercise program. Can you share with yeah. our audience? What, sure. What? No. I, I, well, here's here's the real uh, background. I, I I was always interested in exercise and and written a whole uh, books on a, a attention deficit disorder and then was researching a book on uh, which later became a user's guide to the brain and always uh, emphasizing that exercise was the most powerful effect, natural effect that we had on our brains and. Uh, and I had outlined uh, a book on exercise and mental health in the mid-90s and never got around to it because I was doing so many other things. Uh, but then I learned about this school in Naperville in 2003 and learned that uh, uh, of their 19,000 students in their school district, only 3% of them were overweight. And uh, of their 7,500 kids in their two high schools, they didn't have an obese child. Um, so this was compelling uh, because what they, what had happened 20 years before that, one of their PE teachers, Phil Lawler, uh, noticed that even though he had his kids every day in middle school for physical education, his kids were not getting any healthier. Uh, because they were playing traditional games and sports and all that. And he was a very passionate uh, baseball coach, but also a passionate physical educator. And he said, we have to do something different. And he began to revolutionize the program where it became a fitness-based program, uh, daily fitness uh, exercises, running, uh, calisthenics, but main focus on aerobic conditioning and uh, then three years into this, he felt that his athletes were still getting the best grades. So he decided to make this big, brilliant step where he started having everybody wear uh, heart rate monitors. And this allowed him to grade on the amount of time the person spent in their cardiac training zone, which meant that the athletes had to work pretty hard and the unathletic kids and the uh, uh, people that had coordination problems or came in a little bit uh, heavy or out of shape, they had to work uh, as just as hard as the athletes, uh, but their heart rates were in the cardiac training zone, uh, and everybody then could do well in physical education and get an A. Uh, this led to a huge change at his school, and then other schools in his district began to switch and change uh, into this mode, and eventually all of the many schools that were in the district uh, adopted this program. And that led to this incredible fit student population. And uh, some years before that, uh, in 2001, they had uh, lobbied to take the TIMS test, which is the international uh, science and math test that's given every three years uh, to most countries all over the world. And the U.S. Was, is usually in the mid to lower teens uh, scoring in science and math. Well, they took it as a country and came in number one in the world in science and number six in math. And this was 99% of their student body. So all the kids took it, and this was dramatic 
um, and got me on an airplane to visit Naperville to find out what was going on. And then uh, it was very clear after being there that I was going to also focus not just on the emotional regulation power of exercise, but also on promoting cognitive health, uh, cognitive performance, intellectual uh, capacity, etc. So that led to my beginning to put together uh, reading a thousand papers and trying to abstract them and make them readable, uh, which I think we did in Spark. Yeah, definitely. If as far as the Naperville School District was was the fitness program the only thing enacted within the school district, or was there was there a diet uh, component as well within the, within the school, or anything else, or was it just the fitness program? Well, I can tell you this quite honestly. In two thousand five, when I was two thousand four, two thousand five, when I was there every year. Uh, their cafeteria had not changed at all from the old uh, starch, and uh, they still had soda machines and and uh, juice machines in the cafeteria. Kids were, you know, got pizza and pasta and all the other things that uh, has an effect on diet. Uh, and uh, it was just purely the fitness program. I think that that we can attribute this to. But what happens when you get fit is you get more interested in your diet, uh, more careful about your diet, which we know happens uh, psychologically, but also physiologically. We know that exercise chronically will make you less craving those quick carbohydrates, and uh, that's led to... a, a much more reasonable diet approach. Right. Yeah, that's that's interesting. It'd be interesting to to see a school uh, have a change in their diet program as well as the fitness program uh, holistically well, that, at the time. They they did do that later on. Um, oh, right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like most schools, they uh, or like a lot of schools, they did change their their whole cafeteria. They they became much more focused on wellness in general because they knew the power of this in terms of making their students better students so but it but at that time it had not the wave of change the Jamie Oliver stuff or the the you know the let's eat right kind of thing had not yet affected uh the schools like it has today so they did right. not change initially but then subsequently they they have changed quite uh, along with many other schools, right? Yeah, I, I found that really interesting, just because the um, the the changes that we're we're seeing, you know, within uh, the the fitness, uh, the the obesity rates, um, the men, the cognition, the perf- uh, test performance scores, and things like that, were I mean, remarkable the 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 change that occurred. So it was inspi- it was inspiring to to start the book in that way, just because. It kind of prepared me as the reader for the book to, um, you know, really uh, immerse myself in the information and uh, have a, have a better uh, inclination to uh, use the information and kind of really embrace it. So um, I really liked that you started the book that way. Uh, you t- you talked about uh, brain derived neurotrophic factor, or otherwise known as BDNF, in the book. For our listeners that that aren't familiar with this, what exactly is BDNF and how does it impact our lives? Well, BDNF is is a factor that we learned about oh maybe in the early 90s uh, or late 80s. It we didn't know about it for you know, but as we were di- discovering what was happening in the brain, we uh, this this little factor was identified. It was initially thought just to guide the development of the brain from birth. But then we began to realize that this factor was really what's what I called the fertilizer, brain fertilizer, or what I called miracle growth for the brain, um, because this factor is is vital to have our brain cells grow, but also have our brain cells remain resistant to stress 
And what we've learned subsequently is incredible what, what BDNF does. It, it keeps our brain cells, our 100 billion brain cells that we have, uh, regulated. It helps uh, make them young and perky. It does everything that fertilizer does. And the corollary to all this is that BDNF uh, promotes the growth of our nerve cells. And that is very important. In the last 15 years, there have been three Nobel Prizes given to people showing that the way we learn anything, the way we take in information, is with that we have to have our brain cells grow. So the BDNF is a key factor. Now we know there are many others, but it, it's sort of the mother uh, factor of keeping our brain cells ready to grow and sprout. And this is essential for us to encode information, to put it in our uh, memory banks, and then also to retrieve it. Subsequent to, the, the, in this decade, in uh, the past 10, 15 years, we've learned that BDNF also is a regulator of mood. And in fact, many people now are thinking that the antidepressant effect of our drugs and of our activities and certainly of exercise is related to BDNF levels because one of the uh, gross changes that we see when people get depressed is that their brains become less plastic, which means less able to change and grow, and in fact erode in a chronic depressive state. So uh, by dumping in BDNF, we get uh, a change back into a state of neuroplasticity. Now, this is really important because we now know what happens. Uh, we know that when we have our 100 billion brain cells firing, that is acting, working, that this sends a feedback loop to our genes within that cell to turn on machinery to make more BDNF. So it's a self-repeating uh, kind of activity. The more we use our brain cells, the more BDNF we make. That's why we see an increase in BDNF in learning, when we're thinking, when we're focused, uh, and certainly when we exercise. Because as I uh, outline in the book, there is nothing that we do that involves more brain cells than when we exercise. The brain evolved to help us be the best, if you will, the best movers, the best exercisers, the best uh, completers of our action. Uh, and these same cells that made us what I call the evolutionary victors uh, are the cells that we use now to think, to ponder, to think abstractly, to make decisions, to sequence uh, our actions and then our thoughts to help us write term papers, to help us understand uh, complexities. All that comes from our moving brain cells. Interesting. So if someone would want to incre basically increase their, their uh, BDNF, their brain-derived neurotrophic factor, uh, they would, exercise would be definitely one of the best solutions for that, but also just creating new neural pathways in the brain through kind of uh, stimulating the senses in a way that allows their mind to stay active and kind of non, not rigid, basically engaging the mind as often as possible in different ways. Yes, no, it, 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 is, it is the best way to, to engage the brain. You know, and especially, and this is what we now, and it's gotten fancier, we know that if you're exercising and you're also challenging the brain in other ways, like exercising outside, exercising on, on you know, if you're running, running on uneven surfaces, running or, or playing with somebody, running with somebody, walking with somebody, uh, it it our brain is demands more 
uh, not just the physical activity per se, but it the more complex the movements, the more coordination challenges, uh, playing soccer, hockey, basketball, those kinds of ac- tennis, those kinds of activities where you're having to to think and move and and shift and change involves a tremendous amount of brain activity, which is really uh the 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 fulcrum for our brain growth because now we think of in the past 15 years people have called the brain as a muscle the more you use it the better it gets the more you use it the stronger it gets and that's why exercise is so powerful that's interesting yeah that it's it's a good excuse to uh, get outside and play more that's for sure <laughs> Yes, uh, and and when we know, in fact, that, that being outside has tremendous, has m- many more advantages than, than exercising inside. Uh, not only putting us in nature, but uh, making more challenges for us. And this is really key and crucial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could imagine the, the environment and the stimulus. And I mean, it makes it makes complete sense. Uh, you talked briefly in your book about, uh, I, I kind of want to cover some topics as far as stress is concerned, because I know in today's world, a lot of people, stress is something that is constantly kind of uh, affecting their health and their lives. Um, you talked about stress inoculation. What exactly is stress inoculation and, and how does that affect us? Okay. Well, when you use brain cells, okay, what you're doing is stressing them. That means, and in, in a broad definition of stress, is being more active than you would be at rest. That's stress. So using more of your cells, and especially your brain cells, uh, than you would be if you're not using them. Mm-hmm. This causes uh, activity in your brain cells that uh, make more... Uh, Free radicals, people may under, may have heard that term, but that means we burn energy in, in our brain cells to work. This causes uh, breakdown products. This causes damage. Well, what happens in what we, we call stress inoculation is that you make more of what I call the janitorial staff, antioxidants, uh, DNA repair enzymes, uh, straightening out heat-changed enzymes. Uh, these factors get boosted up and increased more than if you're not moving or if you're not acting or if you're not using that brain cell. And they overshoot the mark in uh, exercise. So you make more of that, you make more of this janitorial staff that then is much more able to deal with other stresses that may come down the pike in the future. So this is why we talk about stress inoculation. And and since the book, we've learned that exercise increases uh, the life of a brain cell and the life of the gene so that it doesn't go flu in and produce cancer and all this other stuff that uh, by increasing our telomere length and all this other stu- uh, fine stuff that we're only getting a handle on in the past 10 years or so. Okay, so so basically stress inoculation is to some degree sort of a positive form of stress that increases your ability to respond too stressed in, in right. life. Stress okay. in general. Stress in general, if it's short term, and it has an endpoint, uh, is builds the resilience of our cells to handle stresses in the future. Now, most people think of stress as bad, and what they're thinking of is toxic stress. Stress that doesn't go away. Stress. Right. Stress worrying about your 401k becoming a 201k. You know, or your, you know, the drop in the stock market, or the, the, you know, death of someone, or other stresses that that impact us. 
and that we worry about and and don't go away. The good news about exercise is that you have it for a short period of time, but then you recover, and that's where the growth occurs. If uh, And that's where, when you talk about it, uh, marathoners, when they're running the marathon or ultra-marathoners, they sort of go over the threshold of, of stress and actually can do more harm uh, than good uh, for their bodies and for their brains because they really uh, never get a chance to recover or recovery takes some time. Right, okay. So, yeah, I, I remember you talked about in, in your book how uh, basically exercising uh, as a response to stress is what we evolved to do. So basically you have that external stress and then the the exercise and movement increases that threshold basically so that you can handle that stress. And in a sense, is there some degree of kind of uh, de-stressing going on or kind of like burning that stress at, on, a, on a chemical or a, a cognitive level to some degree? What, what, you, what you do is you... I mean, the thing that that's important is you raise all kinds of uh, neurotransmitter levels, all kinds of factors in your brain when you exercise, a brief period even. And what you do is you bolster uh, the brain's ability to deal with stress on a short-term and a long-term basis, uh, both what we call acutely and chronically, uh, acute activity will raise your neurotransmitters and it's like I used to say it's like getting a, a little bit of Ritalin and a little bit of Prozac um, both of which can help you deal with stresses uh, immediately better you're more calm you're more contained you're less impulsive you're more focused you're more positively aroused uh, and this all helps you feel better, feel less stress, feel less anxious. And, and uh, in my chapter on stress, uh, I, I talk about how the chronic exercise, daily or, or three to five times a week exercise, builds the and changes into your brain cells so that it, eventually you will have a, a real stress inoculation, it will take more of a stressor, more of a threat, whatever that might be, to you to cause you to go into the stress response, to get over alert, and then to get into the, the uh, fight or flight response that, that happens down the line. So uh, you have both an acute acute phase and a, and a chronic change of our brains. Interesting. I, I thought a couple different things in your book that you shared were inter interesting, one of them being uh, antioxidant-rich foods contain toxins that induce the stress response in the cell, and uh, which kind of increases that threshold to some degree, too. So uh, do you think, I mean, based on your research, or is this kind of the conclusion you've come to, is that this kind of stress inoculation or stress response from both exercise and foods that contain toxins actually kind of help to balance the cell, even from food, for example, with, with that example of the antioxidant-rich foods? Well, sure. I mean, you, today in the, in the media, people are talking about resveratrol. Uh, we're talking about cumin and tamarind and... Uh, broccoli and garlic and onions all uh, causing an increase in antioxidants. It's not from it, they're not providing antioxidants. What they do, what they are are providing stress to the intracellular environment, especially in the brain that is similar to uh, exercise because they are toxins. They contain toxins. Then, and specifically in broccoli and garlic and onions, neurotoxins, meaning toxins of our brain cells, but in a very small quantity. Well, what this does, it, it turns on that same 
machinery to deal with these toxins, and then you overdo it, so you grow more antioxidants intracellularly, uh, which is where the action really is and where it needs to be. So that's why people are taking, you know, the various and sundry uh, uh, plant extracts uh, that that cause this uh, intracellular stress. Right. So, so our our bodies actually kind of produce that antioxidant to some degree, or it kind of pairs with the antioxidant. No, 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 no. They absolutely produce it. Uh, intracellular. Wow. We produce. We produce our own antioxidants. No, that's the point. It's not about how much you're getting from the broccoli or the garlic or the uh, the onions or tamarind. It they don't contain necessarily a, a high degree of antioxidants. What they do is they cause your own cells to say, "Hey, we have an invader here. We have to do something." and it produces an, an, a glut of antioxidants, if you will. So you have it intracellularly. Interesting, huh? That's I guess, that's very interesting, and it, it's a it's a good reason to uh, pay attention to the the foods you eat and, and know which foods can can help in that regard. Um, you, you talked about the hippocampus in your book uh, and how how it actually shrinks or enlarges because of stress. How did, first of all, how does this happen? But then also, what what does that mean for us as, uh, on a on a level that that either kind of can benefit us or harm our our, our brain health? Well, what it means is that what what and what happens is a high degree of cortisol or stress hormone uh, when it overshoots the mark, and that's in the tro- toxic stress situation or an extreme stressful event. Uh, will cause eventually cell death or cell erosion. So you find this in uh, high-stress people, in depressed people who are depressed for a, a long period of time. You find this area shrinking, and as well as uh, as we age, this area, the, the the hippocampus tends to shrink as well, and. Uh, that's where BDNF comes in as a combatant to cortisol to keep our cortisol levels under control uh, to ward off the deleterious effects or the eroding effects of our stress hormone. So in in the hippocampus, that's a major thoroughfare for memory and learning um, it's the first er- one of the first areas to be involved in what we call cognitive decline, and which then can lead to Alzheimer's disease. Um, and so you want to keep that area bolstered. You want to keep that strong. You want to keep that part subpart of the brain really uh, vibrant and healthy. Uh, so having a lot of BDNF around will help that. As well, what we learned in 1999 is that we are making, we humans are making new brain cells every day. And a major area that we make these new brain cells that we're very aware of is the hippocampus. And uh, they come from our innate stem cells that we have. And this is really important to uh, help grow more brain cells in our hippocampus. And study after study shows that the best way of producing more neurons or nerve cells in our hippocampus from stem cells is exercise. Is physical aerobic exercise the best? Anaerobic or strength training is right behind it. Yoga, uh, tai Chi, other movement-based exercises are behind that. But they all increase the amount of new brain cells we make every day. Interesting. The the hippocampus, what kind of role does that play on a, on a day-to-day basis in our lives? What, what does it affect? What does it do, what, basically? Well, think about it as the grand central station of memory. 
In other words, the memory is all over the brain, and we get the information from our, our front part of our brain that comes down into the hippocampus and passes through there uh, and helps form uh, cellular assemblies that capture what a memory is. And it's a vital link in the chain uh, to help us place things, to help us be aware of where things are at, uh, as well as uh, other other memory functions. So it's a it's a key area that's involved with memory. Interesting. So kind of the the alignment and, and flow of information and memory and cognitive function in the brain. Basically. Right for for me, for many of many of the things that we learn and and remember absolutely interesting uh, so so basically really what it comes down to is if if the brain isn't actively growing uh, then then basically it's dying and it's it's shrinking um, so this is mostly related to to the hippocampus and and uh, brain drive neurotropic factor uh, exercise and movement uh, are there any other things that we can do as far as uh, you know health, uh, fitness uh, that helps to kind of feed the hippocampus or the brain in, in any way uh, beyond uh, exercise and movement. Well, it's not just the hippocampus. I mean, it, it's the entire brain and especially the front part of the brain that gets gets fed and get and grows. It sprouts. Uh, the initial study back in 1995 showed that exercising rats had one, a bigger hippocampus, but two, they had thicker and more connected frontal cortex, or the top part of their brain. Hippocampus is buried within the brain. Mm -hmm. um, so, But it's very important. Our, uh, the thing that makes us most human is our frontal cortex, our prefrontal cortex. And this area grows as well, but it doesn't, we don't know that it adds more brain cells. There's a suspicion that it does. But the brain cells we have there uh, bloom, if you will. Uh, there's springtime for the brain as opposed to fall and winter, uh, if you're a Northeasterner, you know, that the, the leaves come off uh, when we don't use our brains. And when we're using them, they tend to spring up and flower and, and uh, get more vibrant and, and allow for more connections. Right. Interesting. Uh, are there other specific forms of exercise? I know you mentioned, you know, aerobic exercise is kind of first and foremost as far as benefits go, and then anaerobic uh, exercise, yoga, tai chi, and so on and so forth. Are there any specific kind of uh, uh, exercises or movements or uh, environments or anything that's kind of interesting that uh, would would kind of be interesting and enlightening that is kind of new in, in that area? Well, I think, I don't know that it's new, but uh, I think the best overall form of exercise is probably dance, uh, and then followed by Tai Chi, I'm mean, not Tai Chi, Taekwondo or the martial arts. Because you're in a, a high aerobic state, it involves very precise movement, very precise coordination, uh, and with a partner or with a group that involves really complex movements, awareness, searching uh, functions for the brain. So your brain is really on fire in those environments. Now, there's a recent work in the past, but in the past 10 years or so, we know that probably the best form of exercise is high-intensity interval training. That means uh, you have very high intensity for short periods of time that lead to very interesting and helpful changes in the brain. Um, it, it actually activates more good stuff like human growth hormone uh, as well as nitrous oxide, which all have a very, very powerful effect on our bodies and our heart, but also on our brains. So these high-intensity intervals, uh, Dr. Tabata in Japan came up with the Tabata exercise, which some people may recognize. 
It's very popular in many uh, uh, health clubs throughout the country here and abroad. Uh, but that's a four-minute series of four-minute exercise where you really go all out for 20 seconds and then 10 seconds rest, and you do that eight times, and that's a four-minute exercise. Uh, and this has a very positive effect, uh, causing a, a, and you have to do it extremely uh, intense, as intense as you can, uh, and it has a, a, a nice effect on your muscles, on your heart and on your brain. Interesting. Inter interval training, I've actually been seeing more of that. I believe uh, CrossFit is interval training, right? Oh, CrossFit is one of the best exercises people can do because it does so many things. I, did, I, I finished another book called Go Wild uh, where I identified a lot, of, a lot of the positive effects of CrossFit because there <clears throat> you're being stressed in very different ways. Uh, at different times, you form a group uh, eventually. There's group cohesion. You have the support of the group. Uh, now they're doing more and more outside activities, which I think is really important, uh, and you enjoy it. So it, it really envelops people into uh, a network that's very different than going to the gym. It's similar classes uh, have become oftentimes or boot camps um, but it's not quite as long as a, a, a whole hour boot camp but you you do intense exercise at different different kinds of exercises different challenges uh, and every day is a, a little bit different interesting uh, work so it's it is a uh, terrific model because it, you form a small tribe, which is really important in uh, evolutionarily speaking. We come from small tribes, so you 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 form that, and that helps you, the everyday athlete, uh, the everyday person, become an everyday athlete, not somebody who has to be skilled or have a history of being a you know a, a, an athlete. You, people that aren't athletic can join, and you, you go step by step, and you go as quick as you know, as 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 quick and as slow as you can. Uh, there's no pressure to outperform others, and and then you get your own competitive spirits going, and and want to do better and better and better, and you're supported by the group to do better. Right. Yeah. It's, I it's funny, I was actually talking to a friend the other day, and I said, you know, in, in the Army, they don't separate everyone and say, all right, you, you, you go over there and work out, and you go over there and work out. <laughs> They're all together, and there's that, that kind of tribe or, or sense of community that uh, kind of uplifts the whole group, but then also uh, is kind of a, a motive, has a motivational factor to it to, you know, really push the limits and, and um, uh, you know, to some degree outperform and compete, but obviously in, in CrossFit or something like that, it's not as, as competitive, but uh, an HGH, a human growth hormone, that's something I believe uh, reduces, at, at, I want to say at the age of 40 or something, it, it reduces and, and that really uh, ages the body, so that's a, that's a huge benefit is, is keeping the HGH uh, levels high. Um, you mentioned in your book also that uh, walking was, was one of the, uh, as far as the, the studies go, the that walking was really the most convincing study as far as uh, exercise goes. Was that is that still kind of the the conclusion in that regard? I don't, I don't, well, I don't know that that's. I mean, walking is, is uh, walking at a very fast pace. Um, it prevents. I mean, the reason why it's most convincing is because more people do it. Um, but you you want to get. It's all about heart rate. You want to get your heart rate be, uh, up to about seventy five percent to. To 80% of your cardiac math maximum, uh, your heart rate maximum, uh, which is 220 minus your age, and take 75% of that, uh, and you want to get it there for about 20 minutes, and and you get probably as much benefit as if you're there for 40 minutes. Uh, in terms of all the effects that it has, an anti-anxiety effect, an anti-depressive effect. 
boosting your cognition. Uh, and nowadays we're recommending that everyone do some sprints uh, or some fast action to really get your heart rate uh, close to 90% for uh, a shorter, shorter period of time, two, two minutes or so, um, or even 30 seconds. And then uh, it, it really has that boosting power of uh, liberating this HGH, which actually, it, it diminishes at age 30. It's not 40, oh, it's 30. Okay. Oh. So uh, it uh, goes down to a tonic, what we call a low base level. And uh, because it's the hormone that helps adolescents grow and keeps us young. It's the anti-aging hormone. It's the hormone that all the sports people and actors, uh, athletes have been using now for many years um, to boost their uh, endurance, boost their strength, training, basically to, uh, you know, remain young, change fat into muscle, all those good things is what HGH does. And you can you can liberate your own by these very intense periods of training. Right. And HGH has a lot to do with, with energy, correct? Yes, because it it helps modulate the use of glucose, helps reduce uh, diabetes or metabolic syndrome, uh, something that we desperately need to pay attention to in in this country and many 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 civilized countries now are getting you know upwards of uh, 60% of us are either obese or overweight uh and it's something that we really need to pay attention to right and yeah. being being in that zone really puts you close to uh getting diabetes and and uh, we have a epidemic of of this uh, both uh, not at not being at our ideal weight and and diabetes following mm-hmm. beyond beyond uh you know kind of uh as exercise being a, a de-stressor and uh you know looking better feeling better um having more energy feeling younger what other benefits i know you talked about a little bit about memory loss alzheimer's and things like that what other things uh benefits have been kind of discovered through through aerobic exercise. Well, I think the big one is an is antidepressant effect. Uh, that's what started me interested in it, and uh, it really does. It did uh, numerous studies now have shown it head to head with our antidepressants over a four week period of time. Starting sedentary people on an exercise regime, you find them. Uh, uh, having a, as much of an antidepressant effect as our antidepressants with uh, exercising three to four times a week and getting their heart rates up to about 75%, you will see a change in their mood. Also, an anti-anxiety effect uh, is one of my other chapters in the book. Also, uh, ADHD, uh, um, a tremendous effect on on that, there's papers coming out all the time now, looking at animals, looking at animal models of ADHD. Uh, just this morning, another one came out of South Korea, but uh, you you see it in our ADD kids and adults uh, that exercise. If people could exercise as much as we should be exercising, that uh, I'm sure the the incidence and treatment of ADD would go down. Not to say that it's not real, uh, but it's something that you can self-medicate there. As well, and connected to that, is the addictions. I think this is an area that's just uh, its hard to study, uh, it's, uh, but we know with cravings, both for food and for nicotine, that exercise helps helps reduce the cravings that you have for both. So the more you're chronically fit and then have a burst of uh, activity, the less you'll crave uh, the nicotine or 
and or uh, carbohydrates. Interesting. As far as antidepressants go, is, is that kind of boosting serotonin, or what exactly is that doing to create that process? Well, it boosts a lot of things. It, you know, our antidepressant, our antidepressants first looked at boosting norepinephrine, which is another neurotransmitter. Then, much later, we got into serotonin when Prozac came out. And exercise boosts all three of the major neurotransmitters that we look at in psychiatry that have something to do with mood, norepinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin. As well, we increase the levels of the endorphins or endogenous morphine. And as well, we induce the concentration, the, the presence of what's called endocannabinoids, which is huh. our marijuana factor, right. which we know, we know we have in our bodies, and we have marijuana receptors, if you will, uh, and we have marijuana-producing cells, both in our body and in our brain, very similar to the endorphins, and they act in similar ways. So this, these all act very holistically as a way of boosting our mood. And uh, so that they, they and now the BDNF that I mentioned earlier also has a big effect on our mood. So all these factors are involved. And it's, um, the brain is really complicated. It's hard to reduce it down to one thing or another. And that's... Right always our wish because we like to be in control of it. Right. <laughs> That's true. Uh, yeah, and actually, I've just recently kind of discovered endocannabinoids and have been learning about that. They're, they're quite interesting, and that's kind of a whole new field of research, and, and seems like it's kind of like, you know, the new, uh, not hormones, but it's kind of like the, uh, a, a new field of discovery for kind of balance and, and uh, receptor sites and that kind of thing within the body. Um as as far as you know, exercise is concerned. I know one thing. Uh, for it seems like for me and for other people, and especially with kids, I worked with uh, kids at a, a kids camp in Connecticut several years ago. And it seems like when kids exercise, and and really anyone, that there's not only kind of a a benefit, you know, with the mood and the stress release, but it seems like if people are holding on to kind of uh, you know negative emotions, whether it be like anger, resentment. Uh, fear, whatever it may be, it seems like to some degree there's some sort of like almost like balancing and release of that. Is there anything kind of backing that, or is that just my own philosophy? <laughs> uh, no, I, uh, well, I'm not sure what you're asking. Say it again another way so I can answer it right on. Like, basically, if, if someone is uh, is kind of in, like, we talked about kind of the mood, for example, and how uh, it elevates the mood and that kind of thing. But if someone feels, uh, you know, anger, uh, resentment, anything kind of uh, beyond stress, like a, almost like pain to some degree on, on an emotional level, does, does exercise uh, help to kind of almost remove that or kind of get rid yeah, of that? Yeah, and I, I guess it, it comes back, to, the answer is absolutely. When we go into schools and change their, the school day by adding exercise, uh, daily exercise into it for everybody, the first thing you see is a drop in discipline problems. You see really? a, a drop in, in yeah, the very first thing, and with probably within the first two weeks, you'll see discipline begin to change and anger and bullying eventually. And why? Well, it's not you're burning off the anger, and that's what most of us used to think. What you're doing is you're flipping on the brain. You're turning the brain on uh, in a very acute way that helps the person or the child uh, manage their impulses, uh, to put the block on their impulses. And that's where you see this uh, resentment, anger, nah, I'm not going to do it begin to change because everything changes in the brain. You begin to, yeah, that's if you get the kids moving. And I think this points up to another big thing that's happened in this whole area in the full field is what we call rebranding exercise. That is not to look at it as a long-term benefit, 
but as a daily benefit. What am I going to feel after I exercise? Do I feel better? Do I feel less resentful? Do I feel more motivated? Do I feel less anxious? The answer is yes. And to focus on that, for most people, has to be the, the, the way we change the perception. It's not just about, oh, I have to go to, to work out at the gym so I can lose weight and look good uh, over a longer period of time. First of all, they don't change their diet. They're not going to do that. Um, you know, they're not going to lose weight. The, the diet is very essential. Exercise helps in many ways, burning calories, but also reducing the the cravings. So, but but as far as aggression goes, it's probably the the best way in a chronic way to reduce these uh, outbursts and to bring the person more in command of their impulses. Mm-hmm. So, okay. I mean, it's, 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 it's astounding, you know. I mean, it's not just a little thing. When we go into schools that have a high degree of violence and you begin a daily exercise program in the morning, we, we have seen as much as an 83% drop in discipline problems within the first four months. Uh, and an, an, an increase in attendance at school by over uh, 100%. In other words, 50%, uh, they, they drop uh, absences by, by 50%. Um, so that they get, uh, they want to come to school, they, uh, especially, and then we're talking very difficult kids here. One mm-hmm. school in Ontario, uh, high school, had a, a classroom of their 25 bad boys. Um, that had been going on for years to try and get these kids through high school. Uh, and we came in and helped them uh, institute an ex- daily exercise program. Uh, the quarter before, there were 95 days of suspension because of fighting and property damage and, and fighting with the teacher. Uh, and they were suspended uh, for 95 days for the 25 students. This dropped to five days the next quarter once we began this very intense exercise program in the morning uh, and it really has a very powerful effect on on uh, uh, that's what we talk about emotional regulation right yeah that's interesting so basically the the movement the exercise kind of really for, for the students and for anyone helps to balance the brain so that it works better, so that they're more workable in their environment, whatever that environment may be. Um, that's very, very interesting and, and, and uh, enlightening. Um, also, the, uh, the the working or you know exercising for the benefit of today, as opposed to long term, because I think sometimes you know when we think of something way off in the future, it's kind of uh, it's not very motivating or inspiring, and it, it doesn't cause us to take action today. So that's a great point. Um, I saw I saw online something about the the rate. It, it, first of all, and I know this is kind of late, but is, it, is your last name Ratty or Ratty? I I've seen Ratty. 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 The Ratty Institute. What exactly is that? Well, that 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 is a Facebook site started when my book came out by someone to post new and interesting uh, news articles about uh, exercise and about health in general. Uh, And it was started by my assistant, who's now long uh, left me. Um, But uh, that's sort of fallen away. Uh, I I have to get revved up to, I have so many things out there that I'm doing. Uh, just revise my website, johnrady.com, and uh, and now we'll begin to hopefully post again on the Rady Institute um, to keep people apprised of of uh, new and interesting changes, uh, articles that show, uh, and they're coming out every day. I mean, it's it's incredible the the amount of uh, research that's been done. On exercise in the brain, and and it continues to escalate. Mm-hmm. You you mentioned you're writing an, another book right now, correct? Yes, it's called Go Wild. Uh, it's about how to 
live according to our basic hunter-gatherer genes. And, you know, it's only been 10,000 years since we were hunter-gatherers. And our genes haven't, our basic genetic prescription hasn't changed much, but our culture has changed radically. And we need to pay attention to the basic program that we have. Not that it's not influenced by the environment, because it certainly is, uh, but it still is the basic pattern that we have, and therefore we focus on exercise, diet, sleep, uh, small tribes, nature, and connection. Uh, all these things we are uh, cheating ourselves with uh, in in modern day life, and we need to pay attention to that because the world is becoming more and more unhealthy in terms of habits, in terms of preventable diseases, uh, and in terms of lack of uh, group uh, abilities, intellectual and, and emotional regulation. Right. Well, I, lo I love that title, and I love I love the uh, the book. Sounds like it's going to be amazing, so I'm looking forward to it. Uh, thank you so much for your time, John. I really really appreciate you being on the show, and uh, have an awesome rest of the day. Okay, thank you for having me. Bye Take now. Care. Bye.